I'm Esther Almar. Welcome. You're listening to The Spin. In this podcast, I've spoken to people who travel for work, some people who travel for pleasure, others for adventure. But for Esther Almar, travelling and living between different places has defined her identity. She's lived in Accra, in Ghana. She's also lived in London and New York. And I wanted to know... Where counts as home when you've lived in so many different places? And specifically, what's it like being a migrant in cities like London and New York? And ultimately, I wanted to ask her, what was it like moving back to Accra nearly 50 years after a traumatic experience that threw her world upside down? Now, Esther Omar is a columnist, a TV host, a playwright, and she's the presenter of the radio show The Spin. She launched it in New York before taking it to Accra where it now broadcasts all around the world. It is that time for an hour where smart is sexy. This spin, our weekly all-women of colour media panel. I'm coming to you live from Star FM Studios in Accra, Ghana. Our contributors are on the line via NPR Washington, D.C. We are on air nationally across the United States and internationally here in Ghana and in London. I caught up with Esther over Skype. Both of us sat in our studios over 3,000 miles apart. Hey. Ah, now that's clear. Is that better? Much. And I asked her to start her story from the beginning. So I was born in London. And, um, and then I always say I kind of came, I was halfway out the womb in London. And by the time I kind of landed, I was halfway on a plane to um, Ghana. So I was, I was born in Islington, um, uh, in North London. And then I spent very early years in um, Accra in Ghana. Okay, right. And can you describe to me what was what are your memories like of Accra from when you were a kid? You know, it, it's weird. I really don't have memories as much as I have stories. And so um, my mother tells stories of me refusing to, um, you know, wear real clothes to go to school and then actually refusing to go to school at all. So she had to kind of take me out into the, I love the green and the trees and the grass, and I just wanted to plant my feet in the soil. So she tells a story of having to teach me my kind of ABCs and my one, two, threes using kind of mangoes and coconuts and, and grass and leaves. And um, I was really, you know, that kid. And then my two elder sisters did go to school in, um, in Accra in their lovely prissy dresses. And I was barefoot in the mud, in the grass, having a good old time. <laughs> So you say that your childhood is kind of made up of stories rather than memories. Are there any other stories that you've got from from when you were a child in Accra? Um, there was apparently uh, a time when there was a um, a rat outside, and um, I decided that might be a good idea to have it as a pet and try and bring it inside, to the absolute horror of not just my my mother but my screaming elder sisters who you know genuinely thought that I had lost my ever-loving mind and um, I was I was a weird kid because I was a kid who thought well why can't we just reason with the rat I'm sure everything will be fine and um, they were not of the same mind (laughs) things did not end well did you not keep hold of the rat we did not Ben as I call him in later years because of the Michael Jackson song was not ever did not ever become a pet and I was um, I think I was nicknamed rat chick or rat girl for a while by my sisters when they were upset with me. So what were your family doing in, like, what, what did your parents do for a living in, in Ghana? 
So uh, my father was a minister in Kwame Nkrumah, who is Ghana's first president. He was a minister in the cabinet. He was um, the high commissioner to London, and he was a minister in the Kwame Nkrumah cabinet. And so we were actually moving between London and Ghana as he was going about his official duties. And my mother then was um, a housewife looking after the the kids. But also um, because we were, you know, you're talking Ghana is the first country in Africa to become independent. So you're going from colonial times into independence times. So it's incredibly exciting and it's a incredibly powerful time. So even though my mother will say she was um, a housewife, there was so much going on and um, so many people um, around the house and uh, moving around us. And um, it was an exciting time. It was a, it was young men and young women um, taking the fate of their nation into their hands and looking to steer it in a particular way. And they were young people, so it was incredibly um, uh, incredibly exciting. And so that's really what my, my um, parents were doing. My father was very passionate. He was a, a man who loved to read. He was a literary man. Um, and um, I always kind of have an image of him, God rest his soul. He's been gone now almost 10 years. But I have an image of him sitting on a chair, on an, on an armchair in, in, in London, reading The Times, but having the exact same pose in a chair in Accra, reading a very kind of yellowed version of The Times because he always kept newspapers. So they had these kind of yellowed stack of newspapers in a corner and he might pull one out and um, and read. And my father was also a writer. So he was always thinking and writing and he had these um, kind of those A4 lined pads you know the ones that you could just rip a page off and it would be you know writing thought stream of um, consciousness and he would um, ultimately be be, be published and he wrote um, he wrote a couple of books wow so in the 1960s you mean you painted it as quite an exciting time to be a young person in Ghana but it was also quite a tense time right absolutely I mean the um, we were there um right through the first military coup, which was February 1966. And um, that was just a profoundly um, traumatic time. You know, and I think it's the first time as I look back as an, as an adult, you know, I understand what it, what it means to be terrorized in your own home, in your own space, and that for your, for your home to just become a living, waking nightmare. And so, um, you know, it was very traumatic uh, it was the night of um, February 24th, 1966. Um, it was the middle of the night. Um, there was security at the door because my, my father was in the government. But he had left with other ministers and the president to go on a, this delegation. So they were on their way, actually, to Vietnam, although they didn't actually get there, but they were on their way. So that means it was, you know, women and kids that, that they met. And so it was rifle butts used to break down the doors, um, they broke every piece of glass in the house, boots stomping and screaming and shouting. You know, that one of the soldiers put a gun to my mother's head. Um, it was just, it was traumatic, screaming, tanks. It was utterly a traumatic, traumatic time. And then my father ended up being um, incarcerated with the father of our last president. So the former president was a man called John Dramani Mahama, and his father and my father were in prison at the same time as a result of the military um, military coup. 
But we ended up living under house arrest for almost two years before we were able to get out of the country and then come back to um, London. You know, so that means that the, the people who you felt terrorized you in your home and put a gun to your mother's head essentially just moved in. So that sound of, of boots and military fatigues has just always given me pause. And it's a really strong, unpleasant, um, painful memory from that time. I can't imagine how difficult that must have been. Oh, it was... Um, I mean, it's interesting. I, I know the story from what my mother told me. And I don't have any personal memories. But what I had was the legacy of the nightmare. So for years afterwards, um, I would wake up um, in the middle of the night and I would be shaking or I would be screaming and um, my whole body is drenched in, in sweat and my mother would have to come and change the, um, the sheets and I was shaking. And I had that recurring nightmare of hearing the stomping of the boots for, I mean, for years, right up until my um, teenage years. And it wasn't until my mother told me the full story of what happened in 1966 that I was able to put the nightmares in a context that made sense and not just think I was literally losing my mind because I could not get through a night's sleep in peace. It was always interrupted in the same way and it was just really traumatic. God. And so was it this incident that led to you moving back to the UK? Yes. Yes, it was. Okay. And then so tell me about that move. How was it moving from Ghana back to London? It was really difficult. Everybody was so was scared. You know, you were scared. And then um, we didn't know what was happening with our father. We didn't really understand what was, you know, happening. And parents don't always tell you an entire story. So as a kid, you just get pieces of it or you get the emotion of it. You really don't understand what's going on, but you know that everything is not right. And so it was a really hard process settling in and settling back down in London. So it was a very weird time. And then getting getting into the routine of going to school, finding a school, going to school, um, dealing with the normality of every day. So everything seems normal on the outside. But on the inside, you're really still dealing with the, the, the trauma and the, um, the terror. And like a lot of families at that time, it's not as if anybody talked about it. So nobody sat down and said, well, let's you know, make sure everyone's okay and how are you feeling? That just was not, it just was not a conversation. And so you're, you held your trauma within your own individual body. And it was just, it was just hard. It was just hard. Was there much of a Ghanaian community in London? Like, were there other people who had been through anything similar to what you, what you had? Yes, that was the part that probably was definitely comforting for, um, you know, my mother and ultimately my parents because um, many of the... Ghanaian um, ministers and in, including the president had been back and forth to London. You know, Ghana was a nation that was colonized by the British. And so the independence movement, as it was growing, people were going back and forth between um, um, London and the UK. And of course, once we hit independence, that happened even more. So we were a family going back and forth as well. So there was actually um, a fairly vibrant Ghanaian community. And there were obviously other um, ministers and the children of ministers who um, who came back. But it was definitely a traumatic time for, for everybody, but in different ways. Yeah. So rather than moving back to Ghana for good after moving to the UK, you actually ended up moving to New York. Is that right? Yeah. So we couldn't go back to um, um, Ghana. So my father didn't, didn't necessarily leave the, the government. Um, he stayed in and he was in political life 
um, his whole entire life. And so he actually went, he was, um, there were other military coups. There was a military coup in 79. There was a military coup in 81. So my father was actually a political prisoner uh, more than once in his life, which put us, the family, in a certain amount of danger. So we actually physically couldn't go back to Accra for many years. But I was a, definitely, I was a curious kid and I was interested in other um, cultures. And so um, I actually started traveling to Europe when I was like 16, 17, to um, Paris and to um, Madrid. Um, I lived in the Canary Islands. I lived in Ibiza. I lived in Tenerife um, and had always had this dream to move to New York and decided that I, that I would. And so I moved. I moved in 2006. And um, what a time I had. Lord, what a time. <laughs> Before we hear about Esther's move to New York, a very quick note to say that we would love to hear from you. You can give us a rating and write a review on iTunes. It takes like one minute and it means that other people will be able to discover our podcast. You can also subscribe to The Rough Guide to Everywhere on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. It takes one click and it means that you won't miss an episode. Here's Esther describing her first impressions of New York. Well, I didn't really understand why it wasn't a movie set. You know, like I really had the stereotypical idea of what New York would be. And um, I really couldn't understand why it wasn't, it wasn't, it didn't have the glamour that I thought or that I was expecting. Um, But I really loved Brooklyn, where I lived. I lived in Bedford-Stuyvesant in Brooklyn. And I really loved it. I loved the neighborhood. It felt very familiar um, it was a street where I was in Bedford-Stuyvesant, Brooklyn, and it was a street where there were a lot of, it was brownstones. So brownstones always reminded me of Spike Lee's films. So I kind of felt like I was a bit of a, in a film set. So that part felt good. And, uh, and um, the, the beautiful brownstones, it was a really gorgeous street. Many of the brownstones were owned by African-American families who had them in their families for generations and they were renting them out. Plus you had, where in Brooklyn I was, you were around the corner from a really strong Caribbean population. So a lot of Jamaicans and, and Trinis. And that really reminded me of Brixton in London. And so there was parts of New York and specifically Brooklyn, specifically parts of Brooklyn that really reminded me of home and felt like home. So um, I really felt like I was building um, community and I could get my, my roti and my rice and peas and my jerk chicken. There were things that just felt like home. And so that felt, um, you know, really, 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 really good. But the, of course, the other thing with New York is the pace of it. It's a relentless city. Like it just moves at pace. Physically, it moves. Spiritually, it moves. Emotionally, it moves. And you just got to like get, you got to catch up. You got to keep moving or you will literally get run over. Did you find that you were, were you good at keeping up with that pace? I had to learn. I, I mean, I'm, a, I'm somebody who studies landscapes and I, and I kind of studied, because I was in, in media, I studied the, 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 the landscape and the media landscape and I was figuring out how am I going to work within this space. And I was a pretty quick study. So I definitely, um, you know, got the hang of it and figured out a way to work that was really good for me and end up, ended up having work-wise and creatively a really fantastic time. Um, you know, wrote four plays. They were all produced in New York and in Chicago, developed some new work that I was passionate about, created a radio show, created another radio show, wrote, was published. So I had a, um, in terms of the work that I was doing, 
I really had a ball and I, and I figured it out. I think that the real challenge in New York, particularly the first year, was loneliness. The first year I was so lonely. I was really lonely. And then you learn when you're really lonely and you're an immigrant in New York, the last thing you ever want to do is date because you really only attract crazy men like you really do. <laughs> because the, 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 the um, loneliness is like a perfume. <laughs> it's like the crazies can smell it. And so... It was really, really tough. And I remember um, just one day going to, like, I like to cook. So I was going to the corner store and I was going to cook a Sunday dinner. And when I was homesick, I would cook um, Ghanaian food. So I was cooking traditional food, jollof rice and uh, roast chicken and vegetables and salad. So I was down at the, the corner store, the key food store, and I was going shopping. And I remember seeing these two women. They just ran into each other. It's like, oh, hi, hi. And then they were hugging. Oh, wow, fancy seeing you here. And I just started bawling in the aisle between the mincemeat and the vegetables because I was just thinking, will I ever know anybody well enough to just run into somebody in the store who knows me and has wondered where I was or what I was doing? And I just, it was really, really hard. At first it was really hard and I almost went back twice. So was it the loneliness that ultimately led for you to, to look to move elsewhere and ultimately back to Accra? Uh, no, because because once I developed community and then I developed friends, got into a relationship, did the whole thing, and I started to feel like I had a full life, then it was it was great. And then I was you know living and doing things that I wanted to do and just really living dreams out loud, and it was wonderful. But I was there for um, eight years, and actually my mother came to visit me in um, 2013. She was turning 80, and. I hadn't been home to Ghana in eight years. And when I was actually living in London as a, as, a, as a young adult, I would actually go back and forth. Once my father was freed and we were able, it was safe to go back, I would go back and forth at least on holiday. And when I lived in New York, I never, be, I never went back once. I hadn't been around close family for almost eight years. And I just hungered for the connection of um, Accra. My mother was turning, you know, 80. She wanted all of us, all of her kids to come back for like a party and a celebration. And I just thought if I didn't see my mother again for another eight years, she'd be almost 90. And that just was not, it wasn't going to work. It just wasn't going to work. And I was ready. I was just ready to, I was coming to the end of, you know, my time. It was, I'd wanted to go live in New York. It was a dream. I felt like I'd lived the dream that I wanted. And I went home for three months in 2014. And I'm like, I'm moving. I'm coming back. Do you remember what the first day was like when you went back for good? It was hot as hell. I had forgotten how hot it was and that you really had to figure out wardrobe in that kind of heat. Because it's equatorial heat in West Africa is not, for example, New York heat in the summer. It's very different. Um, dealing with humidity. So the first day, I think I just ate things that I loved. <laughs> yeah. I felt like it was a food. The first day was about food and drinking fresh coconut water because you literally pull the coconut off the tree. They slash it with like this machete thing and they just pour it straight into a glass. You shove it in the freezer, let it get really, really cold. Best drink ever, ever. Best drink I ate jollof rice, home-cooked. I think I just ate. I really did. And then, of course, it was time to work out because you can't be... So, yeah, first day was really that. Okay. Did you, what were the things... What were the main things that you noticed had changed since you'd been away? S the city was so much more developed. I saw 
um, you know, the roads looked better. Everything looked better and cleaner. There were so many more um, hotels, like beautiful hotels, five-star hotels. Major development had happened. And, um, you know, it's like, it's like having a date, seeing something with new eyes. And um, it was beautiful. And I moved around the city and I was just looking at things and thinking, wow, this is so different than when I was last here. And, and then, of course, beginning to meet other people, um, other sons and daughters of the diaspora who'd also come back or were coming back. Because I think when you visit, when you visit somewhere that's a particular seduction, temporariness is seductive because the newness in everything and the finiteness of everything makes it really enjoyable. And I think when you come to live, it's just a different scenario because then you're engaging with the everyday and then that becomes a different experience. Um, but I really had a ball. I loved just being home and, and, and meeting people. And I, and I took some time to, you know, hang out before I started working and everything. So that was great. And, and then, the, um, you know, it's like, it's like a relationship. You had your honeymoon period. And then you have to get used to the fact that, you know, people don't put the toilet seat down no matter how many times you ask them. Um, and so you have to deal with what it means to engage with it every day. And a lot of that is because I, you know, I'm Ghanaian, my my parents are Ghanaian but I was born in London and I've lived in New York for eight years and I was in London for whatever 15 years and so um, people don't think of you as Ghanaian and you learn how much the parts of you that have been shaped by other places the parts of you that are shaped by London the parts of me that are shaped by New York is all the Ghanaian sea so to them I am not Ghanaian I was almost always American Almost always. And it was really weird and interesting because in New York, I'm a brown-skinned black woman who is considered a brown-skinned black woman um, who was definitely black British in New York. In Ghana, I was like this light-skinned sugar mama who had American money, a Manhattan pad, and could just, you know, go go order a plane and, and go first class to Dubai. It was just really bizarre, people's notions of um, who I was just because of how you move through the world and the assumptions that people make. And it was really funny. Uh, there was always the, um, the taxi test was the funniest one. So in London, for example, you know, there's the knowledge and then there's fares. And so you get into a taxi and it's going to be a set fare because there's the actual uh, meter. In Ghana, it's all a negotiation. It's all a negotiation. And then the negotiation depends on whether or not they basically think you're Ghanaian. And I never thought I was. And so I'd get in the back of the taxi and then we would go back and forth and they'd always asked me to tw- test my, my Chui. Chui is the one of the, the um, um, national languages of Ghana. I speak it very little and I speak it very badly. So I always failed that test. So then it was always the food test. Jalof versus Wache versus Fufu. So Jalof is one of our nat- national dishes. Wache is like the Ghanaian equivalent of rice and peas in Jamaica or in London. And then there's Fufu. Fufu is a very traditional dish. And um, if I was a Fufu lover... Then I passed the bona fide Ghanaian test. And if I chose Jalof, I was damned for life. <laughs> wow. Okay. Did you, how quickly did you figure this out? I figured it out when I realized that it would, it would um, detrimentally impact how much I would pay for the taxi. So then it was fufu and wache all day. <laughs> That's good to know. Maybe I'll try that if I ever go to Accra. Yes, but the trouble is you are actually white. And so being actually white, that's actually going to be a whole nother conversation. A slight obstacle, maybe. Yes, just slightly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so can you give me an idea of what's going on in Ghana now? Like what's 
the music scene like or what are the fashions that have that have changed recently like is it, can you give me a flavor of what it's like to be in in Accra it's incredibly um exciting um there is so much that is uh going on in terms of fashion there is this love affair with um reconnecting to african print and african style um, and our traditional uh, kente, the kente of the Ewe, the kente of the Ashanti, Batakari, these specific things that are grown and homegrown in Ghana. So you meet designers who are finding ways to um, develop and design really exciting, gorgeous clothing. And then you find people from the diaspora coming back and thinking about ways to monetize fashion and commercialize it and make it a business that doesn't abandon its creativity. Um, there is exciting developments in terms of media. Our media was very, very closed. And then there was a, a, a new bill with the Broadcast Information Bill. A whole bunch of radios sprung up and we have, there's like over 100 private radio stations. And so being able to move around or get information from the media was much, much more exciting. We're an entrepreneurial city. Ghana is a, a country with 10 different regions and I'm in the capital city, Accra. But it's incredibly entrepreneurial. So uh, people with, with drive and with passion who want to be self-determined, who want to shake the legacies of colonialism and dependency. And so entrepreneurial in spirit, wanting to start their own businesses. The music scene is incredible. So you have the uh, marriage of high life, which is our traditional Ghanaian music that, my, for example, my father loved, and hip hop. And the two together in Ghana, they call it hip life. And so you have this extraordinary group of young artists, Sakodye, Stoneboy, Shatawale, who do... Um, hip-hop, but in our traditional language, mixed with pidgin English, mixed with English, mixed with American-accented English. And it is just genius. It is so fly and so sexy. And so it's really exciting watching the export of identity that is still preserved and protected as identity. I wanted to know, so you've obviously lived in various different places around the world. Like, where do you consider to be home that's always such an interesting question because my idea of home is probably is is has changed as a result of the places that I've lived. So, um, for example, New York is a creative home. Um, Accra is an emotional home, and um, London is a physical home. So, by that I mean I connect to the places differently, and. I think about home in terms of belonging. But it's not always belonging in the same part of your uh, sense of yourself or in the same um, part of your body. And so when I go to London, it's a physical home. It's the years that I was formed. I went to school there. There's friends that I have from school when I studied journalism, when I studied law. Um, New York is a creative home because I did so much work that I'm so proud of and developed in um, New York. And it's a place that I found incredibly freeing. Um, Accra is an emotional home. There's something about my spirit and my heart that is just content and, and safe and just feels good when I'm on Accra soil. So I claim them all, but I claim them differently. And they claim me differently as well. We're all forced to tick a box at customs that defines our nationality, but Esther makes an important point that identity is more complex than that. Some people are part British, part West African, part European, part New Yorker, 
Some of us used to be called Ratchik. Every now and then, and particularly now in the world that we live in, I think it's good to remember that our identity is the result of everything, like it's our experiences and influences and the places we've lived. It's not just a box-checking exercise. That is it for this week. You can listen to Esther on her brilliant radio show, The Spin, on Facebook and SoundCloud. Just search The Spin One. You can also follow her on Twitter, at Esther Armar. And remember, you can also subscribe to The Rough Guide to Everywhere on iTunes, and we would love it if you could give us a really quick rating and review. Thank you to George D and Keith Drew from Rough Guides. Thank you to my producer, Alana Chance, and my exec producers, Laura Sheeter and Ruth Barnes from Chalk and Blade. 